Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. And today we have author Roger Lay. Roger, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me on here, Gary. Um, so I understand that you've written um, a, a few books. Um, what, is, got, what got you into writing? Uh, well, retirement, really. Um, having, uh, you know, I used to be a, what we call here a senior lecturer in, uh, in um, computer-aided engineering. You'd call me a professor. Um, and I retired and um, having sort of dug the garden and painted the house and, you know, joined a amateur dramatic society, I found myself at a loose end and I, I started writing stories, basically funny stories from um, my life and okay. selling, selling them to magazines like uh, Reader's Digest and um, Best of British, the oldie, various magazines. You would have heard of Reader's Digest, obviously. Actually, yes, yes. My, my, I, have a, I had an uncle that subscribed to it, and he died, like, man, like 10 years ago, and I'm mm-hmm. still getting his Reader Digest <laughs> um, his subscription. Well, the, the problem with writing for magazines like Reader's Digest is that they, um, they'll take the story off you, but they don't want to hear from you for a year. They don't want you sort of appearing every every month or anything so i ended up with two with a whole load of stories that it was going to take me years to sell so in the end i just put them together and self-published them as a book called uh, a horse in the morning and um, that's that's how i started writing what does that title mean horse in the morning oh, a really strange thing happened one morning. this really happened one morning uh, a few years back i, was, I lived right out in the country uh, up a little driveway. Uh, there are a few other houses around here, but really not many. And it's at 8.30 in the morning, and I heard this thumping noise at my front door. And my front door is half glass, you know, and as I walked up towards it, I could see through the, the glass panel. There was a horse standing outside. And <laughs> it had been thumping my door with its front hooves, you know. And... It transpired, this is absolutely true, Gary, that this horse had run away from where it was being kept 15 miles away. It had raced across Suffolk, across a dual carriageway, and into the sort of countryside where I live. And for some reason, when it came to my house, it just walked up the drive and banged on the door and then just stood there. (laughs) So you had a horse just knocking on your door one morning. Yeah, and uh, I gave it a bucket of water, but it didn't want it, and it kept looking in, in my, the window of my lounge, you know, and I was really puzzled about this until somebody told me later it was just looking at its own reflection. Hmm. And uh, I got a farmer friend um, to, and he came around to have a look. I mean, he used to keep cows, similar sort of thing, you know, and he phoned somebody up he knew, and they took the horse away, and eventually it was returned to the owner. But it was just a... It's just a strange incident, really. And uh, I called the book. I just thought, I just picked it out. I had to come up with the title for the book, and I just picked that name. I, I like slightly obscure sort of titles. Uh-huh. That is an interesting title. Um, what other anecdotes do you have in that book? Whatever, what other one? 
anecdotes or stories that you have so well the best probably the most i mean it just starts with my first memory you know which was the coronation of of queen elizabeth ii and on an I was watching on a little tiny black and white television in a neighbor's house with about 15 people clustered around, you know, and so forth. But it just goes right through my life until I'm about getting on for 70. And um, I think the most, one of the most interesting incidents was how I got arrested by um, Colonel Gaddafi's secret police in Tripoli. And how that happened? Well, I was, I, I used to work off, well, I worked offshore later, but I worked in North Africa, in Libya, uh, because I just couldn't, at the, you know, at that time, this is 40 years ago, 45 years ago, I couldn't earn a reasonable salary in England, uh, having gone through college and everything. And, and so I just ran away to the oil fields, really, and started and worked as a mechanic. And uh, even though I'm a, an engineer, in fact, but um, yeah, I just earned really good money there. And we had a fantastic leave break schedule. We used to do 33 days on and then they fly us home and we have 21 days off, which was great, except a lot of the guys used to get rather drunk when they were coming back. I didn't. And um, I was sitting next to a guy who was uh, drunk and abusive with the uh, airline staff. And when we landed, he was arrested and they couldn't find any the bottle of whiskey he had because he'd given it to somebody else. So they just arrested the other two people who were sitting on the other side of him, and I was one of them. They let me go the next morning. They were perfectly pleasant to me, but uh, (laughs) I came out of prison the next day intact, you know. And, uh, yeah, Uh, yeah, it's just a bit, you know, in England we don't have a lot of guns, you know, and generally speaking our police don't carry them, so I'm sitting handcuffed in a, in a a, a Tripolitanian jail uh, police station while this man is questioning us in Arabic, so we don't know what's going on. And everybody's got a machine gun and a moustache. (laughs) And so anyway, we're sitting there, they take us off, I mean, I can carry on talking about this, but they took us off to the clinic so that they could check us out for being drunk. In Libya, the definition of being drunk is to have had one drink and that's fine with me. That's their rules, their laws, and you know I abided by them. But the other two guys did not, and um, so I was uh, told that you know the doctor said I was completely sober. Anyway, we go back, and one of my friends, an electrician who's sitting next to me there, one of the, the other two guys, is suddenly his handcuffs fall open, and he looked around, and I leaned forward and said, you know, Ken, they're dying to shoot one of us. And he quickly did his handcuffs up and sat there holding them closed all the time, you know. <laughs> he was trying to escape. So it's, it's a bit like that, you know, it's quite funny in places, uh, that book, you know. And then um, I sort of got to the end of writing that book and I was kind of thinking what to do next. And that's when the Martin Riley incident happened then. So, so how did you uh, come across Martin Riley? Well, again... I'm this the town I live near. The nearest market town to me is called Halesworth, and there is um, a hotel there that's about 300 years old. It's an old coaching inn. The whole of Halesworth is ancient. You know, if you walked around it, and they've got they've got houses there going back to the Middle Ages, really. And I used to sit in the um, lounge bar of the Angel Hotel. 
with a notebook in my hand and a cafeteria of coffee and I would just sit there for a couple of hours in the morning and, and, and scribble away, you know, and people left me alone. They knew I was, uh, you know, ten, a, a writer of sorts and um, they didn't disturb me. And then one day, uh, it's the winter, December, I think, the door from the street suddenly bursts open and in walks this guy and he looks around, shuts the door and... Um, just walks straight over my, to my table, plonks himself down and puts a box on the table in front of me. And uh, I said, do I know you? And he took his scarf and hat off and said, my name's Martin Riley. I invented time travel and I have a story that you might like to write. And it transpired that the box contained a whole load of notebooks and diaries and pen drives and so forth that described Riley's life in the um, uh, you know, as um, a scientist and uh, the inventor of temporal messaging. Hmm. Um, did, did he say how he chose you? Um, yeah, it's apart from the fact you knew I was a writer and I had t technical knowledge. You know, given that I, I had, uh, you know, it's not, it's not. There's not a lot of engineers and scientists that can actually string words together and write books and stories and so forth. And I think he chose me on that basis. Now, I'm not saying that I'm unique. There's plenty of people around that could have done the job. But um, it becomes more apparent if you read the book. And it's a, quite, it's a matter of spoilers, really, at this point, Gary. Yeah. Um, so he chose you because of, like, your, your ability because you had you're an engineer and you have this technical ability to understand what he's, his story. Um, well, I, yeah, based on, on, on some of the technical information that he provided you, are, do you think he was legit? I don't know, you see, because we only spoke for about an hour and then he disappeared. And I, I you know, I dipped into this box and everything and I, I'll admit that I, I guess I must have believed him because he told a pretty pretty good story i'll tell you that and when i looked into the box of um, all the diaries and pen drives and so forth um if it's a hoax it's really it was really elaborate yeah he must have spent years writing all this stuff up you know i don't actually think that he was being truthful there is a notebook in there that sort of tells the rudiments of temporal messaging which is what he invented rather than time travel um, and I don't know if he's being truthful because my, the theory is that Martin Riley he actually comes from a different timeline. And because his work was secret, it was taken over by the British government and then by the American government, um, he hasn't got the plaudits that he was looking for. And um, he didn't get the Nobel Prize that he wanted. And I think he just wants to be famous somewhere. And I think he's, he's prepared to be famous on our timeline. Although he's not really famous because the book's classed as a fiction, isn't it? It is. Um, what, what is that term temporal? Messaging. Messaging. What is that? Well, what it is, is Riley couldn't send people or matter back in time, he could only send information. So 
now we get into the whole business of paradoxes with time travel, you see, because let's take the matter of Princess Diana. You may remember, it's a long time ago now, of course, but when Princess Diana died, there was a big argument. The Queen wouldn't put the flag at half-mast over Buckingham Palace, and there was a lot of ill feeling. So on Riley's timeline, what happens is the government is informed of Diana's death two weeks before it actually happens, and they're able to get the television programme sent back two weeks, you know, and they see the build-up outside Buckingham Palace and the crowds building up and so on and so forth. And in the end, they kind of lost their nerve and they arranged that the driver of Princess Diana's car from the Ritz Hotel in Paris would have a different driver. One of their assets put a Mickey Finn in the drink of the guy who was supposed to drive the car, who was inebriated apparently, and they had a more careful driver, and that accident never happened on Riley's timeline. So here's, here's the paradox, Gary. Uh -huh. if, it, if it didn't happen, how come all those television programs of it happening and what happened afterwards was sent back? Because they didn't happen. And the answer is that the timeline branch, branches every time something changes. So every time you change something, it creates an entirely new timeline. Exactly. And there's plenty of other science, plenty of scientists have postulated this. They, they, they postulate there might be you know, infinite numbers of timelines being generated every instant. If there's infinite number of timelines, wouldn't that mean there's probably infinite versions of myself and yourself also exist on those timelines? Yeah, each one being slightly different from the other, you know, and slowly, 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 the timelines, the actual histories and the stories on those timelines and the people's people would change, you know, imperceptibly if you went to a, cl a close timeline, you know, you could jump. You know, this is this is not my idea, you know, it's it's been postulated before, but it, it makes me very worried in real life that, um, you know, when I'm choosing a tie to wear, is this yeah. going to Anything, you know. um, are you familiar? Like, like here, here in the United States, there was a project called the Montauk Project, um, which sort of interconnected with the Philadelphia experiment. Uh -huh. And um, you know, and, and there's definitely like like a time travel story behind that, where one of the members says that he traveled back in time. Mm. Yeah, it's. You know, it's difficult, isn't it? People come up with stories and everything. And myself, as a you know, mechanical engineer, I, just, yeah. I don't see, believe I, much that I can't touch or see. Yeah, I, I kind of believe it because of, you know, both those projects originated at a place called the Institute of Advanced Study uh -huh. uh, in Princeton. And that's actually the town that I'm from, Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and, and, and you know, like, all that stuff sort of just started there from Einstein. And um, so, you know, if we tie that in, it, it just sort of, it adds, to me, it adds legitimacy to some of that story um, and, and a possibility of time travel being a real thing. And, well, um, one of the things that people I've heard talked about is this, the idea of flying saucers, aliens, that kind of thing. If you believe that 
the speed of light can't be um, exceeded, then any of these creatures might actually be coming from other timelines. As I say, the further away the timeline is from your timeline, the more yes. different, different things would be. So, yeah, I mean, who knows? Who am I to say? Yeah, I've heard stories that um, aliens may be humans from the future. Yeah, that, that, that he evolved, you know, because of lack of gravity and stuff like that, evolved into something that looks a little bit different than us. Mm -hmm. Well, you've only got to look at the amazing diversity of life on this planet. You know, I remember when um, Richard, was it Richard Attenborough brought out um, his um, original natural history program. Sorry, I've forgotten the name of them now, about 30 years ago. I was absolutely astonished and these sea slugs and, and bats and, you know, all kinds of things. I, I don't think that the aliens that they, that people draw are sufficiently different from humans, if you see what I mean. I think yeah. they'd be more different than the thins and the greys and so forth. Yeah, you would expect them maybe to look more like insects or, or just something that we can't even conceive of, for that matter. Yeah, absolutely, because we've got so many strange creatures. I mean, you, here's one thing I've thought about, is the number of different ways of locomotion. You know, walking on two legs, walking on six, hopping, jumping, flying, swimming. You know, it's just astonishing. Uh, if, if you did, if there were, you know, creatures from another planet or from the distant future, I, I could imagine they'd be very, very different from us. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen that picture of, it's an old picture from like, I don't know what time it is, but it, it shows, it, it goes back to the time before cell phones exist, existed and it shows the picture of a guy with a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you can do anything with Photoshop, can't you, really? You can. Yeah, it's a pretty I mean, popular photo that yeah, I've been around. Seen, I've seen one of a German, you know, a bunch of German troops in the Second World War. One guy appears to be looking at a mobile phone, but he actually could have been holding a packet of cigarettes, you know. It's, I'm... Uh, I'm not easily convinced, to be honest, Gary. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've, once, once they invented mobile phones, then there should be lots and lots of pictures of flying saucers and aliens, because every, nearly everybody's got a phone in their pocket, a camera in their pocket, rather. Mm -hmm. And so where are the pictures, please? Where are the videos? You know, the convincing videos. It's, it's, you know, that's why, as I say, I'm not easily taken for a ride, but uh, who knows, maybe Martin Riley doesn't really exist. Maybe it was somebody else and they just chose me because they thought I was gullible. I don't know. Has anybody in town, in your town, I mean, if, if you live in a small town, has anybody ever come across this character before? No, no, he, he appeared, disappeared. And, you know, if you follow his story, you know, he's on a different timeline now. He could be... He could be anywhere in the multiverse, really. Mm. Um, he could be hopping backwards and forwards because he did, you know, later on in the book, it becomes apparent that the proper time travel is being used and um, he can hop about, you know, he, he comes a long way from his original temporal messaging. Um, 
situation. Um, it's all it's basically to do with um, people in the future getting very uncomfortable about his activities because if he makes the wrong changes, then they are likely to wink out of existence and they they protect their time their particular timeline very carefully. And they're kind of shocked to discover that this guy Martin Riley's invented temporal messaging a long, long time before anybody was supposed to know anything at all about time travel. I can tell you that much because it kind of appears in the prologue of the book. Right. Um, does he give you any details on how he developed temporal messaging? Yeah, but you see, it could be a pack of lies. I will tell you what he says, you know, but whether or not it's a pack of lies, because it, it might be that he, he doesn't want to, or he might be constrained from telling us, you know, how to do temporal messaging, because, um, you know, it's a bit like, what is it, Star Trek and the, and the Grand Directive? or whatever. Don't interfere. Yeah, sorry? The, the directive of not interfering with evolution. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he might have he might have come up with this idea to sort of put us off the scent. But the idea is this: that what he discovers is that you know that that space time is four dimensional, the three space dimensions and time. And so, if you had a wormhole, which is a fairly you know well recognised concept, yeah. it can join another part of space with this part of space, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it could actually join the same part of space, but with a time separation as well. And that's what he does. He finds wormholes at the quantum matrix level, and he can send information down this wormhole, and it can go back two weeks. It can't, you can't go any further than two weeks because the wormholes get more and more difficult to find the longer. It's just a question of instrumentation. We haven't, we, he doesn't have the instrumentation to find them any, any longer than you know, two, two weeks in length. Later on, um, things improve and he finds a, they find a way around that. But you know, at the beginning of the book, all he can do is send information back up to two weeks. So here's the question, Gary. Um, thing is that Martin, at the beginning of the book, is about 30 years old, and he starts receiving messages from the future, emails from himself 20 years ahead. Was he betting on horses? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, his, his self 20 years ahead has got to come up with something that's convincing um, that's going to convince Martin Riley that he really is himself 20 years ahead. And so what do you send back? You, you know, the, the point about horse racing results is it's a quick way of getting your earlier self rich so that you will also be rich in the future. But it's also not something, it kind of proves the validity of what you're doing. Because if you can just keep predicting horse winner after winner after winner, there's no way of fixing races to that level of accuracy. Right, because statistically, it has to be legit then. Yeah, and in the end, Martin Riley becomes convinced that it is legit. And so now he thinks to himself, now, if it's possible to send information back in time, as, I, as he's a particle physicist, he thinks... I, I want to investigate this, and it's a lot easier to investigate something if you know 
that there is a solution. That's the way he sees it. He, now he knows that there's a solution. Mm. You might say to yourself, why doesn't his earlier, his later self, just send him back the information on, on how to do temporal messaging? Right. Well, there's a paradox there. Where did the information come from in the first place, you see? So his, his self in the future is he's very nervous of doing that, and he knows that if he just co convinces his younger self that it's possible to do, then the younger self will investigate, find, get funding, find out how to do it. And that's, that's, that's pretty much it as far as we can go without spoilers, really. Hmm. It's just a question of whether it's true or not. Yeah. Um, I've been reading another, this other book is the book that I've been reading. Um, Describes the universe as um, a, a massive void of nothingness, and one particle just appears. And because that one particle appears, automatically it has to take on every conceivable form, which you know obviously is a lot. You know, our entire universe of multiverses or whatever it is. And that it all happens at one time, and like, like in a flash, and that there's really no such thing as time. And what we appear at, what appears to us as time, is um, an illusion. It's just our our slowness of perception. Yeah, I, I I hear I hear what you're saying. I mean, what you described there is very very similar to the Big Bang, isn't it? Similar, but but there's no bang. There's just a particle, and yeah. But it, does it expand? No, it doesn't. Ah, oh, I see. It, it's just it's just like conscious. Ah. Hmm. So so, well. so so like everything doesn't really necessarily exist in a physical form. Things only exist in a conscious form, and the physical is somehow is it, it's just an illusion. And some of that does show up in quantum physics, you know, where you shoot like particles through the two slots. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they land one way when they're not being observed. They land a different way when they are being observed. So it's yeah. just interaction with consciousness. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, as, and somebody, one of the famous quantum physicists said, if you think you understand quantum physics, then you don't. <laughs> That's true. Because it's just so different from, you know, two things, you know, something can be in two places at the same time, particles can be, and you're quite right, it's, it's, uh, it's quite possible that, you, well, we know that our brains have got limitations, and although we're okay with um, the three spatial dimensions, it could very well be that we just can't process time any other way than to see it as a sort of film strip going by, you know? And it, and it could be that it's more like a pack of cards, you know, that every every incident happens all, all at the same time. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Good analogy. Yeah. See, and, and I think if if that is the case, I'm not trying to debunk the story, but if that's the case, would wormholes really be needed, or would all you need is a redirection of consciousness? 
Ah, yeah, well, <laughs> for all I know, that's what Martin Riley really did. And that the wormhole thing is just, I mean, my worry about these wormholes is they're so small that I wonder if electromagnetic radiation could actually pass down them as the quantum wormholes are so small. So I'm sorry, I haven't got an answer for you. You know, my, uh, my qualifications are in mechanical engineering rather than quantum physics. No, but it sounds like you have thought of this and also questioned it in a similar way that I have. Well, having read Martin's books and notes and so on and so forth, you know, I spent about two years processing them and, you know, simplifying them. And the, and the book that I've written is not a blow-by-blow -blow account of Martin Riley's life. It's, it's me elaborating on some pretty cryptic notes at times, you know, um, to try and make the thing readable. Um, it's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever tried to read The Silmarillion. No. Well, you know, it's so different from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. It's just unreadable. It's just, it's, it's, it's like parts of the, um, the Old Testament. It's just, you know, lists of names and, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's not like a story. And, um, yeah, that's the way it was with Martin's notebooks to, to some extent. I had to elaborate in order to make the whole thing into something that was uh, interesting and amusing and readable. Uh, but you know, the, I think the basic, the basic story is there. You know what he left me. Oh, interesting. So yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Like you had to put it in a linear way so we could read your read his story in a way that made sense. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I may not have got it all right. You know, it could be that people will look into it and pick over it and, um, you know, find faults and so forth. And all I can do is say, it's not my fault, it's Martin Riley's fault. You know, like when writers, authors put in the back of the book, they say, I had help from this person, that person, and that person, but all the mistakes are my own. Well, I'm more likely to write, I had help from this person, that person, the other person. And if there are any mistakes, it's their fault, uh -huh. not mine. <laughs> you know if if the copy editor left a comma in there uh, where it shouldn't be it's not my fault you know it's the copy editor's fault but um no seriously martin riley's told this story i think the overall story is true but as i say whether or not the techniques for temporal messaging and uh, he never does explain actual time travel which does which happens in the book but mm -hmm. there's no explanation for how i don't know if you've ever heard of a book called the first 14 lives of harry august i have it, heard of it yeah you have well that's the best time travel book i've ever read it's written by a young woman and she just does not bother with any of the paradoxes or explanations or the physics or anything like that she just tells her story you know about a guy who keeps being reborn but he can remember his previous births, you know, and he keeps being reborn in the same time, if you see what I mean. And uh, I really admire the fact that she didn't bother to try and explain any of the time travel aspect of it. She just got on with the story. The guy I just interviewed about an hour ago was a past life regression therapist. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so, I 
why am I chuckling? I'm, I'm trying to tell everybody that uh, a time traveler spoke to me. In the room. Well, it, it kind of connects, though. I, I, see, that, that's sort of my point of view on, on these things, is everything is connected somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our consciousness and what we perceive to be matter, time travel, UFOs, um, all the way down to even just a simple process of imagining something and writing it down on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. I think it's just all some religions, mythologies, I think it's all connected somehow. Um, mm. and, and, and we're just not able or not smart enough, or, or evolved enough to understand it. Yeah, I, I, I read a fantastic book recently called Mission, and I, I'm terribly sorry, but I've, I'm just not very good at remembering names, and I can't, and the book isn't in this room, so I'd have to leave the room to go tell you the name of the author, but he uh, re-explains the um, birth and crucifixion of Jesus Christ in a completely different way and ties in all the other world religions at the same time. Very, it's a fiction, mm-hmm. but it's very, very engaging. It makes you think about the way people, I mean, 2,000 years ago, it was the Iron Age, wasn't it? The Romans had iron swords, they didn't have steel, or they got beyond bronze. So how do you explain stuff to a non-scientific group of people wandering around in the desert, in the Palestinian desert, you know, you start talking about angels, don't you, not spacemen. Oh, you have really analogies to work with. Yes, yes. So I can, you know, I, I can, I, I, you know, all that, the biblical stuff, and you know, it's, it's, it's really quite easy to put it into a, a modern day, give it a modern day spin, and um, it all change. you know, it's, it's not angels and and suits and the supernatural it's just advanced technology a lot of there's a lot of that in the hindu religion uh-huh um and, and also like they consider jesus to be just an incarnation of krishna yeah now that yeah. krishna just keeps reincarnating his different spiritual figures yeah i mean yeah i love it you know it makes sense doesn't it that all, all of these um I, I, there's half a dozen sort of really major religions. I was, when I was teaching at Norwich City College, I used to uh, be a, a course leader. And um, I don't know, they, they, they sort of laid down what we had to talk about during a, you know, a half hour session each week. And uh, I had to do a bit about comparative religion. And I went onto a, a website um, which gave you a one-page breakdown of all of the major religions. And do you know which one I like the most? Which one? Sikhism. Because they, they, they have a big thing about, they, they have a big kitchen, you know, and they feed people at their temple. Mm-hmm. Anybody in the area can just go in and get fed if they, if they haven't got any food. And they all sit on the floor together. Nobody sits in a taller chair than anybody else. Everybody sits on the floor. They believe that women are equal to men and always have done. You know, it's, it's a nice religion. I like it. But, uh, you know, I don't practice it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I could, I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm a Buddhist, I guess. I mean, I wrote a yeah. book on Zen Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. But 
and I, and I still practice meditation and stuff like that. I'm no longer ordained, but uh, I, my problem is that I'm a lapsed Catholic, and uh, if anybody comes along wearing a dog collar and they haven't got an Irish accent, I find it very difficult to to believe in them. Really, <laughs> I was raised Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't have any issues with it. Actually, I actually kind of, you know. It's an old religion, so I kind of actually respect it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I, I can't. Uh, I know it's very fashionable to come up with all sorts of, um, you know, bad incidents and everything. I've got a bad thing to say about, um, you know, the Catholic schools I went to, and uh, in much the same way as I had, a, you know, a good time in the in the Boy Scouts as well. You know, it's uh, highly unfortunate there's been these, you know, a small. Like minority of people misbehaving but yeah so you know um i have a little time travel story of my own ah. um well kind of um i guess it was about a year two years ago i had a really bad epileptic seizure and and i was out for about 20 minutes or so and um I woke up, you know, and, and, and you know, er, er, everything went back to normal. But a week later, I received a book in the mail from Oxford University. And this was not a book that you can buy on Amazon or anywhere like that. This was like a real specific book from Oxford. And the name of the book was, um, was, was Time Paradoxes. Yeah. And, and the date that the book, was ordered and sent to me was six months in the future. <laughs> I had posted on Facebook a copy of the book and the receipts that it came on just to, to show like this really happened, you know? And, and it occurred to me, I said, well, maybe during that seizure, I somehow merged with like a, a, a future or past self and ordered that book and sent it to myself. I, I, you know? I just, it was such a strange thing to have. Yeah. Like my, my wife, of course, goes, oh, no, no. It's one of your nephews playing a joke on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to have something happen, you know, out of the ordinary like that, where you could say to yourself, there really is something else other than this, this mundane world, you know, that we live in. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you really did, you know, have proof of something like that? It would be. It would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I bring up my other book? Absolutely. That, you can bring that, up anything you want. You can always edit it out, uh, Gary. No, I'm not editing anything out. <laughs> um, when uh, I wrote Chronoscape, um, as I've told you on, on Martin Riley's timeline, uh -huh. Princess Diana didn't die. And um, consequently, on his timeline, she, he mar she marries Dodie. And I don't know if you know, but she was going out with um, a guy, um, a surgeon of Pakistani origin, originally. I didn't know and, that. Yeah, I'm trying to think what, again, names have gone, but honestly, you can look this up very easily. And he used to go into the palace uh, where she lived um, in the boot of the car to avoid the press and so forth. And Diana, and this is historic, this happened on this timeline, this is true. Uh, she went over to meet his parents and they weren't keen on their son marrying a non-Muslim. 
So there was talk of Diana, even on this timeline, converting to Islam. So on Martin Riley's timeline, the fact that Princess Diana didn't die, she converts to Islam, marries Dodi, and has two children who are closely related to the heir to the uh, British throne and are Muslims. And uh, the book is called The Muslim Prince. And uh, well, and the subtitle is What If Diana Hadn't Died? And that whole book could be in Chronoscape. It could slot in as about, um, you know, 20 chapters in Chronoscape. But oh. I would I was advised to take it out. Huh. I was advised uh, quite gently by somebody who said he worked for the, the, secure, the SIS, MI6. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, your, your CIA, basically, the equivalent to your CIA. I was suggest that I shouldn't put anything in current scape about the royal family. And um, so I didn't. But then after I published Chronoscape, I thought, you know, this everything that I've written happens on a different timeline, and maybe the Secret Intelligence Service didn't realize that I'm, you know, this is an alternate history. It's something that happens on another timeline, and so it's it's imaginary as far as we are concerned, but real on that timeline. And um, yeah, so uh, I wrote this book uh, basically all about the royal family. What? Because when you think about it, right? Queen Elizabeth II, bless her, um, is, will eventually shuffle off this mortal coil and Prince Charles will become King Charles and he will rule for a while. And then eventually um, Prince William will become king. Okay? I mean, that's going to happen, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know if Queen Elizabeth, I think she might be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's been around my whole life. She's, her Mine cor- too. <laughs> yeah, her coronation is my first memory, yeah. But um, so when Princess Diana on this timeline split up with Prince Charles, you know, as part of the divorce, they took away her title, which is HRH, Her Royal Highness. So although she was still known as the Princess of Wales, she was not a Royal Highness anymore. And Apparently, when he was about 15, William, Prince William said, don't worry, mummy, I'll give you your title back when I'm king. So when you think about it, if, if, if Princess Diana hadn't died, what would happen eventually is her son would become king and she would rejoin the royal family with the title of Queen Mother because she is the mother of the reigning monarch. That is a title within the royal family, Queen Mother. And she would have won. She'd be back in the royal family. Her son would be on the throne. She would have won. And um, in the, the uh, time in Martin Riley's timeline, she's actually um, is Muslim. And you have to guess what happens next, really. Very respectful. It's I must say that it's very respectful of both the royal family and uh, Islam. Okay. Well, I do have Chronoscape downloaded. And I have started reading reading it. Did you pay for it though, Gary? I did. When did you download it? Um, a couple of days ago. Oh, really? Ah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, the, the reason I ask is because I've had so many um, 
by far the most number of people who've read Chronoscape have downloaded it free. You know, I've done free. You know how it is with Kindle. You do free downloads. Mm -hmm. People gobble them up and then they don't write any reviews, Gary. I know. Reviews are important. It's hard to get reviews. Really, really hard to get reviews. And um, I've just had one for one of my other books uh, called um, Dead People on Facebook. It's a book of very short stories. And this person in America, on Amazon US, has given it a one-star review. Which that's, I, no, that, I can, that's when you know you've won. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, he's given it a one-star review and said it's rubbish, which I can accept because there's 11 other reviews that are fours and fives, and these people don't think it's rubbish. But he's actually said, he's titled it Dog Feces. He's titled <laughs> his review. And... And Amazon can't see that that's insulting. And uh, they just say, no, nah, it's fine, you know, people. I don't mind I don't mind getting a one-star review and I don't mind a criticism, but I just people don't have to be rude, do they? No, they don't. But he, he's, he's probably, like, I, I live in the deep south of the United States, so now Alabama. And that's sort of common... <laughs> Is it? <laughs> it's acceptable. <laughs> Is it? Yes. It makes me feel better about it. I'm completely insulted. In fact, in, in some places here, that's considered a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I must put that in a, in a, re, in a reply. <laughs> yeah, say, thank, the, you for, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> no, I just say, coming from, a, coming from you, that's a compliment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you are. It's, as, as you say, though, it's really, really hard to get reviews. You can't, I mean, I put, um, I put um, uh, Horse in the Morning, my first book up, on uh, a Facebook page where I sort of put on an advert for it, and it's, the advert stayed on, the link stayed on for 24 hours before the people who own the page noticed and um, so they took it off because I wrote to them and said, I hope you don't mind that I've done this sort of thing. Uh -huh. It's better to, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking, I'm grasping for here. It's, it's better to be uh, uh, evicted than it is to ask in the first place, if you see what I mean. I mean, by the time they took my link off, I'd been on there for 24 hours and 450 Americans had uh, downloaded Horse in the Morning. Guess, guess how many reviews I've had? Two. None. None. Oh, thanks very much, America. <laughs> you know, you like the book, you get it for nothing. And apart from, you know, Mr. Dog Feces, who probably also got the book for nothing. <laughs> you know, it's adding insult to injury, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's funny. Like, I mean, whenever put out my book like I, I went to all my friends and said look I gotta re go on there and review my book and I, I hit up like at least 10 people yeah to get them to, to review it just just friends family whatever I find anybody who had a, a, you know, a valid Amazon account yeah you get great excuses why they can't do it don't you I have yeah but, <laughs> but most of my friends did support me and, and do it um but it's the same thing with the podcast. Like at the end of my podcast, I ask people to like and review and subscribe to my podcast. 
It's really hard to get people to do it. And, well, but, yet, but yet, that's the first thing people always check. Yeah. Um, let, I, I'm just making a note here. I would have, I would have done it anyway, but um, subscribe. Just write to Gary. Yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it is. It's, it's, it's really difficult. Even I'm on, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the website now. Um, uh, it's, um, I wonder if I dare just click here for just a second. And, mm -hmm. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go off this page because I lose you, Gary. But um, Curious Fictions, it's called. Curious Fictions, and I've had about eight stories up on there, and 4,000 people have uh, read those stories or at least started. And the theory is they're supposed to give you, buy you a cup of coffee. Uh -huh. And if they, don't want to, if they don't want to do that, they give you a like. Guess how many likes I've had out of the 4,000 people who at least started to read my stories? How many? None. <laughs> people don't, you know... I suppose it's not, it's, I was talking to my son about it. He said, I've never reviewed anything, Dad, you know. And I thought, okay, yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very hard to get reviews. I always, you know, when you look at other people's books, you know, established authors, and they've got a thousand reviews. I was like, wow, you know. And then Amazon wonders why people are paying other people to review stuff. I know, yeah. Well, I, I paid this guy in Alabama. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of he's got a lot of kennels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's his name. It could be. That is a popular name here. <laughs> so yeah so we got as i say um, the muslim prince kind of slots into chronoscape but the, the, the nice thing about it because I, I was able to extract the muslim prince and just print it as an alternate history uh, story without having to mention time travel or science or anything like that at all it's purely about the personalities um, mm -hmm. um, and Many of them are, uh, as far as we're concerned, on this timeline fictional because I, I, I like to be respectful of people. I haven't said anything unpleasant about Princess Di or Prince George or anybody like that. Um, and most of the characters do not exist on this timeline. Like, for instance, um, Princess Diana's children, um, Aisha and Faid. Uh, they don't exist on this timeline, so uh, I can say what I like, you know. Yeah. Without without fear of insulting people, I don't want to insult people, you know. Yeah. No need to. No, it's not good. Like like here in the United States, we only have one personality, and his name is Donald. Oh yes. <laughs> well, Gary, I am on Facebook quite a lot. I see a lot of stuff about um, your president, and the way I see it is, he's not my president, and it's not my business to be saying anything about your president. Yeah. You vote for it, and um, you know that's it's your business kind of thing. I don't see too many Americans saying too much about um, our glorious prime minister. No, no, but no. I guess they're similar characters, though. 
Well, they just look like each other. You know, we've got a smaller version. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a little well, shorter. This juxtaposition, it's almost as if our one's a clone of your one. Yeah. They grew him in a tank somewhere. Well, Maybe there's more of them. They pulled them from a different timeline. <laughs> Why he would be smaller, I don't know. <laughs> it was just a timeline that had more gravity. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I will say is that when I, as I get older, I've come to sort of notice that there was a time when politicians were sort of people you respected. Maybe it was just because that's the way the press was with them. And now because um, they're always dishing up dirt on people, um, you know, even our royal family and Prince Charles had a terrible time, I think. And, I, you know, um, yeah, it's just very difficult. to. I find it difficult to respect the current crop of politicians, really. Yeah, I don't vote. I don't even mess with them. Like, you know, yeah. I don't, to me, it's just, you're, you're trying to choose the lesser of an evil. Yeah. And to me, that's not a choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see your point. You can see well, no, none of the above, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I mean, I just, one of the things, one of the stories I wrote in my, and is in my book, um, uh, Dead People on Facebook, is called Pandemic. And I wrote it in 2018. And it's about a scientist working in a lab for the government. He's presented with a virus that's probably originated in China and it, they discover that what this virus does, it's a flu virus and it tends to kill older people. Sounds a and, bit prophetic. I know, I know. And in my book, I, I, in my story rather, I wasn't nearly imaginative enough, you know, because in the story, I kind of think, well, what would be the good side of that? And the answer is that, you're yeah, very, very, very sorry for the old people and all that sort of thing. But think of all the money it would release, the houses it would release, the, the queues in the hospitals that wouldn't exist, you know, and so on and so forth. And so in my story, uh, the government thinks it's a great idea. But um, I don't think it's funny anymore. Um, yeah, I never did think it was funny. But, um, you know, I think that the, the current situation with the virus now is, well, I don't know, where are we going to be in a year's time? You tell me, Gary. I have no idea. I mean, I really don't know. Mm. Um, I mean, like, I, I think like here, like our country in the United States has pretty much worse than any other country. We've done the worst job at containing it. Um, and I don't think for me, it's hard to believe um, anything other than it's been done on purpose by our government. Oh, that really? they, that they, they, they purposely neglected this to do exactly what you were saying is to kill off a lot of the older people to relieve some of the burden on um, the hospitals and financial stuff. Mm. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why my country is delayed on testing and, you know, um, the social distancing, and especially masks. I mean, they just mandated masks here like last week. 
Yeah, same here. Same <laughs> so, here. so yeah. you know. Um, it's so obvious, isn't it? They, we, we sh they should have said, and wear a mask all the time. And um, no, it doesn't come in until next week over here. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. So, you know, I, I believe that there, there's, there's a reason for it. Why they're, why they're do, doing it. Like, and I'm also one of those people that also, I believe like 9-11, I think they knew it was coming and they let it happen. Really? Yeah. Oh, I've always found that one difficult to. No, you know what, you know what makes me believe that uh, one is Building 7. Building 7 collapsed and was never hit by a faint, hit by anything. Really? I thought they both had airplanes flying into them. No, both of them had airplanes, but there was a third one called Building 7. Nobody ever talks about it. But it was a nearby building that also collapsed during during that event, and it happened to have contained a ton of secret CIA files. Ah. Yeah, well, there's, there's the question you haven't asked me, isn't it, Gary? <laughs> what happened to the box of uh, diaries? And I was going to ask you about the box, and were you yeah. able to keep any of it? I thought that uh, maybe you were just being polite, you know, thinking, here's this guy got this story. <laughs> massive hole in it because where is the box of... Uh, and the answer to that is, predictably, it's disappeared. I had it. I had the box. You know the sort of cardboard box that you get um, photocopy of paper to live yeah. Four mm -hmm. or five minutes of it. It's, it's about that big. And I put it under the desk here where I'm, where I'm sitting in my, in my little office at home, in my retirement home, retirement bungalow. Do you have the word bungalow in America? Uh, on the islands we do, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Just a single-story house, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so here I am. And the box, I, I took copious notes, you know, I, I couldn't be working from the books and flicking through them and everything. I constructed the, the sort of bare bones of the, of the novel from the books and pen drives and so forth. And after that, I pretty much, they were just in, in this box un, under the table here. And um, I was working from my, the notes I'd taken and fleshing them out and so forth. Then one day I wanted to refer to something and I noticed that the box just wasn't there. And I couldn't honestly tell you how long it hadn't been there. Mm. So... Who took it, we ask ourselves. Did Martin Riley, just having given me the box, sort of uh, figure that it'd take me about two years to extract everything, he just jumps in his time machine or whatever it is, goes two years ahead, walks into my house, takes the box and takes it away. How about any digital information from it? Did you, were you able to scan any of it? No, I didn't. I just didn't. I, I've changed computers since then. And um, I don't know, maybe, maybe if I really looked back on some of my backups, there, there might be stuff that still exists. That's the thought. I will investigate that. I'll investigate that. Certainly stuff off the pen drives. I mean, there's a character in there called Mary Lee. She's a drone pilot working for the Royal Air Force. And then she's uh, moved over to Langley to work work uh, for the uh, temporal messaging outfit when it moves over to Langley and um, yeah we had uh, I had her some of her um, flight log information you know that was all digital mm -hmm. so although the pen drives have gone I might have I might have um, taken some of that I mean all the rest of the stuff it was just 
paper and I was shaking hand notes from it, you know. And when, it, when it all disappeared, I didn't have any actual evidence. You see what I mean? Nothing concrete. Who do you think took it? Do you think he came back and took it? Or do you think a government agency may have taken it? Yeah, it could have been SIS, couldn't it? If they were that bothered, they might have wanted to know more. They might have wanted to hand it over to their, you know, government scientists. I don't know. I mean, it all starts getting very conspiracy theories. And I, I hate that sort of thing, really. You know, like people who say that the Americans never landed on the moon. And you think... Yes, they did. They really, really did. But I've had <laughs> so many conversations with people saying, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. It was all a film. And you think, no, you're getting mixed up with the film that was made 10 years later. Right. Um, and of course they landed on the moon because other countries have put satellites around the moon and, and photographed the landing sites. Oh, yeah. So um, I don't know. don't know where the pen drives and the all the paperwork went, but I suppose it was predictable that it would all disappear at some point. Well, this stuff does, doesn't it? There's never, you know, everybody talks about Area 51, but there's no flying saucer, is there? It, all, the, all the, all the, what was that film um, about the uh, Ark of the Covenant, you know, one of those um, Harrison Ford films? Oh, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and so they've got the Ark in a box, and the very last scene, the box is being wheeled away from the camera. And as it gets further and further away, you become aware that you're in a government warehouse as big as an aircraft hangar, <laughs> just full of boxes. And this box is going to be put in there with the Ark of the Covenant in it, and nobody is ever going to be able to find it. Yeah, so similar to like um, the smoking man in uh, the X-Files. I don't know if you've yeah. ever seen it. But, yeah. but every time he comes across a piece of like evidence, he takes it to the Pentagon and stores it yeah. in a giant warehouse. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I wonder if uh, all Martin Riley's stuff, all these boxes, I mean, in a wooden box somewhere in Area 51 or, or in Langley or wherever the hell it is they've got these things. Yeah, I like the idea of it, you know. But uh, yeah, somebody stole it anyway. Unless my wife threw it all out and won't admit to it. I have to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> now listen that's, darling that's something that's something mine would do <laughs> i'm not going to be angry if you'll just tell me the truth <laughs> 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 i wouldn't dare i'm too scared of her yeah i'm afraid of my wife too yeah <laughs> she's where it boss. should be <laughs> where it should be gary indeed um, so we're going to get ready to wrap this up. So where can my listeners find you and find your books? Okay. Well, if you just go onto Amazon and type in Roger Lay, L-E-Y, Lima Echo Yankee, um, you'll find my books there. There's five of them. I mean, I have an author page. I have a, a blog. It's uh, rogerlay.co.uk. But, you know, I keep putting links to stories. I wrote a lot of, um, of, of flash fiction as a way of advertising my other books. Right. So if you go on to Tall Tale TV, you'll find that Chris Heron has read about 20 of my stories very, very uh, professionally. And uh, you don't even have to read them. You can listen to them there. And they're free. That's People, people like free. And hopefully, oh, they'll, hopefully they'll leave some reviews too. 
Yeah, well, you know, if any of you, anybody does buy any of my books, and if they like them, I'd love a review. And if they don't like them, just shut up. <laughs> you don't want to hear from Mr. Dog Feces. No, I don't. <laughs> but his wife, Mrs. Cat Feces. Yep, I know her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on my show. Well, well thank you for having me, Gary. It's, uh, it's been much uh, easier than I thought it might be. Yeah, that's um, nice. you know, it's nice. I think it's, it, it all seem to flow very nicely. Thank you. I feel very relaxed. Yeah, and you have a fantastic sense of humor. You're you're a blast. Thank you. I like to give uh, I like to give good value. Ready? And with that, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. Which I will be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. On Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everything imaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. And oh yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.